This episode contains subject matter and language that some audiences may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Unlike any other historical catastrophe in modern memory, save the First World War, the aftermath of the Second World War initiated global reverberations and consequences that would be felt for decades to come from nations all over the world. And throughout those decades of mourning and reflection, a wider scope of devastation also began to take shape, and it permeated the international conversation around the Holocaust and its unprecedented impact on humanity. Death toll numbers continually grew each year as more information became available to researchers and historians. The highly publicized capture of top-ranking Nazi official Adolf Eichmann, subsequently followed by his globally televised trial and sentence of death in 1961, gave factual form to what had only been speculation. That the end of the war did not put an end to the inhumane Nazi or their ideology. The unsettling proof of this notion rooted and bloomed into a shadowy faction that galvanized new rise of anti-Semitism by boldly denying the Holocaust in its entirety, or by distorting portions of facts so as to discredit not only Jewish victims, but all victims. And this group today is commonly known as Holocaust deniers. Although victims had endured horrific attempts on their lives, been ripped from their cities, towns, and villages, and in some cases, helplessly witnessed the annihilation of their entire family, they would once again rise to meet cruel fictions with their own lived-through facts. One such survivor was Pierre Seal. Growing up in Alsace, France, to a devout Catholic family, Pierre was taken into custody by the Gestapo in 1941 for what paragraph 175, a statute of the German criminal code, deemed as crime against morality. What followed can only be imagined by others, but for Pierre was a personal hell, a monstrous repression, the murder of love, the loss of his identity, all of which he suffered in a devouring silence. And he would suffer this way for 40 years, unbeknownst to any family or friends or acquaintances, until his silence wasn't just silence, but betrayal and denial. He kept the sadistic secrets of his incarceration for himself for so long, but he eventually shared his story and his pain and his loss to help so many others. He would publicly rise against the shadowy tide of deniers and repressors in 1982 to take us back to that fateful day in 1941. And with his coming forward, the veil would be lifted on his legacy. And surprisingly, an object so innocuous, so ordinary, 
would be the origin of all his suffering. A watch. I'm Caleb Franklin, and this is Root and Branch, Gay Survival and the Holocaust. Silent Devouring, Part 1 Steinbach Square was well known to police in Alsace. It had gained a promiscuous reputation for the comings and goings of well-respected men in the community, as well as young men, like Pierre, who used the space as an exploration station of sorts. Regardless of age or status, once the door clicked locked behind them, the worries of society and social standings or family and fraught marriages were no more. As Pierre put it, a far cry from love, these exchanges were purely sexual. It was here, amongst the darting eyes and momentaries, that the great shakeup of Pierre's life would lead him into the hands of the Third Reich. Just as easily as he fell into the embrace of a stranger, that same stranger obtained a precious gift. A watch gifted from Pierre's aunt. And the stranger slithered into the shadows of surrounding men. That day, in those moments, not only had the thief taken something tangible, but also something unseen the possibility of Pierre's future. Panicked at the prospect of his family noticing his vacant wrist, he put his faith in the local authorities and decided to report the theft. He was initially welcomed courteously enough and had the full attention of his assigned officer for a number of minutes. But all vestiges of genuine care and concern were ripped clean from the man's middle-aged face with the simple mention of Steinbach Square. Through a ricochet of verbal assaults and shaming, the officer eventually grew more assuring and promised nothing would come of this incident, nor would the young boy's family be informed, so long as his visits ceased to Steinbach Square. Pierre left the station, stained in shame and full of fear. No justice came from this visit. The watch was never retrieved, nor the thief was ever lifted from the shadows. But a list of names on police parchment had gained another member, and the ink was still drying as he slid the list silently back into place. Pierre's seal was now 
for all intents and purposes, a confirmed homosexual. It would be three years later, the morning of May 3rd, 1941, that Pierre would find himself in a waiting room of the German Gestapo. France had since been invaded by the German army with the quick and mighty military campaign known as the Blitzkrieg. Since the incident on Steinbach Square, Pierre had started taking university classes at night. He steered clear of cruising spots, except on the rarest of occasions, and he had left the momentary love affairs for the regularity of a kind and good boy named Joe. But now, there was no sentimentality in the face of the Gestapo. Now, all that demanded attention was the strike of a pen to paper, and with the check of his name, Pierre was left to the biased judgment and brutality of the Nazi regime. He was escorted to a separate room, which soon filled with boys he recognized. Boys he had eyed just like he was doing now, yet this time, there were no signs of warmth, no gestures of intention, no hoping for the easy silence of a locked room. Until one by one, they each reported to a large desk with a commanding officer, illuminated by a single dangling light bulb. Confirmation was needed for a list of names one that had been pulled from the back of a filing drawer and handed to the Gestapo by local officers. With or without sufficient evidence, each boy within that room endured horrific and torturous methods of persuasion. Fingernails were bent back, some ripped free. And at the fever pitch of the brutal questioning session, Wooden rulers were snapped in half, left jagged, and used to sodomize them all into submission and drive them to a state of admission. The barbarism came in waves, lasting into the night and through the following morning. Ultimately, Pierre would stay here in the custody of the Gestapo for 10 days facing comparable torture methods each day and each night, until he was finally padlocked into the back of a police van with dozens of other prisoners, boys he had known, and blindly driven to the horrific hillscape he would call home for the next six months, Shermek Prison Camp. Like a child ripped from sleep, were the insidious anticipation of a great fall. The now 18-year-old boy was simply a cog in the moving machinery. Movement not motivated by desire, but by necessity, by force. He was acclimated quickly, identity stripped, scalp razored roughly, sterilized in ice-cold water. Pierre's seal became now only a number, a tell-all symbol, the plague made flesh. 
He soon came to realize the control of the camp was absolute, and the options were simple. Be killed or work. And even within those slim options, there was no guarantee that the work itself wouldn't kill you or you'd be killed on the comedic whim of a commander. Pierre relinquished himself to becoming a disjointed puppet and spent each and every day at the mercy of his captors. Throughout his time at Shermek, Pierre would recall the guiding laws and principles above all else were horror and savagery. Before the age of 20, he would experience unimaginable hunger, harsh, cruel, and even deadly experiments, violent violations of his spirit and his body, and multiple bouts of crippling sickness. But according to him, all of these aspects of life and occurrences at Shermek were simply molehills surrounding the darkest mountain he would be forced to bear witness to. After only his first few weeks at Shermek, a summons boomed through the camp loudspeaker for Pierre and the entirety of the camp to report to the roll call site without delay. In previous instances, camp prisoners would be called to the site to stand at attention for the length of the whole day, both a form of physical and psychological torture. Other times, the summons preceded brutal camp prisoner beatings, but neither of those were the reason for today's roll call congregation. Among the nameless, motionless rows of bodies, two SS men ushered a young prisoner to the center of the square. It was obvious now. This was an execution. But as Pierre began to focus on the features of the boy, the little pieces of himself, parts of his identity that he had managed to hold on to, shattered a thousand times over. The boy now at death's door was the kind and good Joe, Pierre's love. Oftentimes when we study the events of the Holocaust, the Nazi methods of murder that we hear about most often, although not always, are either one of two. The mass gassing of victims through the use of cyanide-based pesticide Zyklon B, or death by gun violence. And while both of these mediums of murder accomplish the same devastating end result, the discussion of them in relation to the Holocaust innately brings focus to a whole rather than a part, or in other words, a representation of a group of individuals rather than a single individual is typically used to convey the overwhelming cruelty and gravity of the atrocities of the Nazi regime. The issue with this approach when discussing and remembering victims is we run the risk of overgeneralizing 
of taking the uniqueness, the relatability, the humanity away from each individual part of that whole. Thus, we sift them down to figures, facts, and statistics. Although details of an individual loss of life can be disturbing and uncomfortable, the discomfort we feel is our humanity crying out, this is wrong. This goes against the morality of human nature. To gloss over the details is to make memories less vivid, ultimately making that memory less memorable. And if we fail to remember, how will we know when something of a similar nature has taken place before? Joe was murdered in neither of the ways which were unfortunately all too common during the leadership of the Third Reich. His murder stands out to me as an example of the true depravity and lust for power that possessed not only the leaders of the Nazi party, but also their followers and select members of the German population. A crime so ghastly it would likely be received as a false narrative if told from someone other than a witness. From his own memoir, I, Pierre Seal, Deported Homosexual, a memoir of Nazi terror, Pierre recounts the surprising horror of not only realizing Joe has been taken into custody and banished to the hellscape of Shermak, but also this last time of laying eyes on him would be with hundreds of strangers to see him murdered. Now I froze in terror. I had prayed that he would escape their lists, their roundups, their humiliations, and here he was, before my powerless eyes, which filled with tears. Unlike me, he had not carried dangerous letters, torn down posters, or signed any statement. And yet, he had been caught, and he was about to die. What had happened? What had the monsters accused him of? Because of my anguish, I have completely forgotten the wording of the death sentence. Then the loudspeakers broadcast some noisy classical music while the SS stripped him naked and shoved a tin pail over his head. Next, they sicked their ferocious German shepherds on him. The guard dogs first bit into his groin and thighs, then devoured him right in front of us. His shrieks of pain were distorted and amplified by the pail in which his head was trapped. My rigid body reeled, my eyes gaped at so much horror, tears poured down my cheeks. I fervently prayed that he would black out quickly. This scene of barbarity this macabre mountain, 
would occupy a ceaseless passing and repassing in Pierre Seal's mind for the rest of his life. In his eventual liberation from the all-consuming silence he lived through, he recognized openly the fact that he was not alone that day, bearing witness as a single, sickened part of a ghostly whole. Why are they still silent today? Have they all died? I suspect that some people prefer to remain silent forever, afraid to stir up hideous memories like that one among so many others. There would be a time for the stirring and sharing of his hideous stories, as well as his love for Joe. But those events would be decades in the making. Root and Branch is produced, written, and researched by me, Caleb Franklin. Music and sound design by Benjamin Dunn. And artistic direction by Lindsay Franklin. Stay tuned to hear why remembering the events of the Holocaust is so important today and every other day, as well as how Root and Branch will use an ancient memory technique to help listeners commit survivor stories to their memory. As I walk onto the garden, a young boy with an enormous wristwatch walks in circles around the garden. A shroud of shadows follows behind and lifts the watch from his wrist, covering the object in darkness. He is distraught, tears pouring from his face. As I come upon the clock tower, red and blue police lights flash atop, while the boy whose watch had been taken shouts up that he's been robbed. After shouting, the boy walks away, a piece of parchment as big as a blanket prints out with the name Pierre Seal in Steinbach Square. Before it falls and floats down to a group of growing flames. Next, I step onto the field. The boy stands at the front of his family and interlocks hands with another boy of similar age. He smiles, he's happy. But just before he can lean in to kiss the holder of his hand, the other boy and the family turn red and ashen before burning away completely. The boy that's left is taken by the flames. The pond is in flames. 
I see the boy beneath the surface. He's changed. His head is bare. His clothes are made of cardboard. He's emaciated. He's trapped. The previous holder of his hand is above the pond, being held by flames on all sides. As I approach, flames take the shape of multiple dogs. They engulf him, leaving only ash and air to dapple the pond's surface, which then sink and disappear.